Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello and welcome to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is the actor Elliot Chapman, who came to the industry a fraction later than many after a series of other roles in the worlds of journalism and education prior to his training at Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, graduating in 2012, alongside figures such as Faye Marseille, who went on to star in The White Queen, Pride and Game of Thrones. Today, perhaps best known for audio roles as a book narrator and full-cast audio drama actor for Audible.com, his first major leap into the audio market was as the actor cast to replace the late Michael Craze in Big Finish Productions' Doctor Who Strand, where he took on the role of Cockney sailor Ben Jackson, alongside original cast members Annika Wills as Polly and Fraser Hines not only as Jamie, but also subbing in for the second Doctor in the absence of the late Patrick Troughton. Elliot took that and other general character roles across the Strand for a number of years before finally departing last year, a departure he gives the inside track on as part of our conversation. Aside from his work as a disembodied voice, he has also been seen in a variety of theatrical roles, including a much-lauded Renfield in a site-specific production of Dracula in a deconsecrated chapel in his adopted home of Bristol, the number one tour of the West End production of Yes, Prime Minister, and, as should be the right of every serious actor, six months in the West End in The Mousetrap. Elliot has been a dear friend since his drama school days, and we started off our recent chat by discussing the rather interesting label he appends to his career. Elliot, you probably have the most novel form of healthy attitude towards the turbulent career of a jobbing actor insofar as you regard yourself as retired, but occasionally coming out of retirement for a job. How is retirement for you, given that statistically you've got another 40 years or so of it? Oh, I bless you. Bless you, 40 years. Um, I think it's probably... <laughs> You know, it's it's not an original statement to say it is such a precarious way to um, live your life. So I think probably all actors, to a greater or lesser degree, find ways to sort of shield themselves from the reality of it, unless they're immensely successful. And then I think they still have to shield themselves from the reality of it for different reasons. 
But I sort of thought, if I say I'm retired to myself, um, already my mind is in a different place. So then, it, you know, if I decide that a job comes along and someone's mad enough to think that I'm right for it and I decide to take it, it's like, oh, I'm coming out of retirement. Because that's the nice thing about retirement. You can always come out of it. Um, and, um, yeah, so it, it's better than... For me, it's better than thinking of myself as an active actor, um, because I think psychologically with that comes the, uh, uh, what's next? Should I be looking? Should I be trying to make contact with this person? Should I be trying to do this? Uh, do I email my agent? And I think it just you just end up on a just a constant cycle of um, probably pretty damaging, <laughs> um, self-inflicted. Uh, turmoil really you don't need so it's uh, for me i just found it a good way of going okay i'm retired except when i'm not out <laughs> there is i mean there's a tremendous amount of pressure put on actors particularly in the start and in the sort of the, the bunny slopes of their career really isn't there i mean it's especially if you get on the treadmill of a of a larger uh, organization or agency or whatever the, that sort of ladder sensation that you're on yeah i mean the the metaphor or the image of probably comes to my mind is perhaps not so much the ladder because I think the problem with being an actor and I know it's not unique to our our business but there's no there's no sense of that you 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 can continually ascend <laughs> no matter even if it is at a slow pace um, you can come off the back of a job where maybe for a brief moment your your, your profile has been somewhat um, inflated and then you could be right back down to, um, you know, really trying to get um, the commercial for, you know, a very, very cheap brand of um, bleach or something. Um, and, you know, so I, I like yes, it. Somebody <laughs> has done the commercial for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 but you went on to bigger and greater things, didn't you, for, for, for big um, multinationals. Um, but uh, the... Um, I, I think the image that, that always springs into my mind is that you're in a, a car speeding down the M3 or something with a blindfold on and someone else is driving. And that person might be an agent or a casting director. Or, and then there's people in the back sort of shouting at them, but you can't understand what language they're speaking in. Um, and I think this is probably where maybe if an actor breaks and they have a real success and it, uh, it snowballs, I think perhaps they are able to remove the blindfold at least and maybe get one hand on the wheel. But I think for the majority of jobbing actors, it's just, yeah, you're, you're, you can hear the sounds of roaring traffic and you can hear these voices in the back and, and you can feel the, the sensation of swerving about or, you know, being in a labour, I completely stock still and that's about it. And it, it's sort of how you um, cope with that. And I guess linking back, it, for me, it was like the best way to cope with it is to is to sort of say, well, I'm not always active, um, and you're just a bit more reconciled to it, I guess. But yeah, it's also a similar description, really, to a mystery tour in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, right? Really, <laughs> um, were, the, <laughs> were the arts by social force? <laughs> no, that was no, that, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't feel qualified to comment. <laughs> uh, were the were the arts part of your childhood? 
um, in a strange sort of way, um, I mean, none of my family have been in the, I mean, my, my, my uncle was quite a talented painter and he was, um, he was accepted at an art school, but for various reasons didn't go. My mother's a very good amateur painter. Uh, there's been no one in the theatre or um, in the media. But um, my, uh, I mean, we were, it, was a, it was a sort of very ordinary working class family um, set up. But my dad, I think, was considered quite an anomaly because, um, you know, he, working guy, but um, he always had a tremendous um, passion for Shakespeare. He read a lot of Shakespeare and he read, well, he, he never read me the plays, but I can remember from about the age of seven through maybe 10 or 11, he could recite one of the plays as a, as a piece of oral storytelling. He knew them so well that he would, you know, they would become almost bedtime stories. So my first awareness of, of some of the plays was through his interpretation of them um, as a, so I think he probably had a little bit of an actor in him to, 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 do, to do that. Um, but beyond that, um, no, I think always an appreciation for the arts. I know my mother um, took me to the theater um, at times when my, my father was working um, working away. Um, books are a big thing, but that was really kind of it. I, I didn't know, I didn't know anyone in the theatre at all. And at, at what point did did live theatre hit your radar? And, and and when did performing seem like a logical thing for you to to do? Um, it, it was definitely. Um, being taken to the theatre um, and I can still remember the very first thing I saw in a live um, you know in, in an auditorium with uh, an audience and it wasn't a cinema screen and it was um, this is going to date me as well but uh, when I was a kid there was a, um, a television program uh, called Play Away um, and there was a uh, Brian Cant was the the rather wonderful actor who who became synonymous with this sort of slight, somewhat later in his career, and that was the very first thing I saw live, which was a kind of sort of live version of Playaway, and I think the combination of um, uh, an active audience, um, and you knew there was nothing separating you, you knew there was no screen, you were, you knew there was nothing being projected, they were there. Um, I think from a young age that sort of crackle that oh this is actually happening, uh, sort of found, um, sort of hit home. And then I think it just became the, the thing that happens with perhaps a lot of people is we had the school play and um, suddenly the, uh, I was very fortunate to be cast in nice roles in school plays. Um, and then uh, the bug starts gnawing Mm. I, I, I stopped it for quite some years, actually, because I did the school plays and um, teachers and even some of my peers were complimentary enough to say, have you ever thought about this? 
fascinating doing this maybe professionally or something in the future you know something an ambition and as a teenager I absolutely put it to bed and I thought no what is what a what a ridiculous way to live your life um what a what a minefield to try and pick your way through um there'll never be any security (laughs) I knew so much back then um and therefore it took a while before uh, I think it's like anything you try and push down anything in your life and and eventually it'll it'll bubble back up and push out the cork um and that's kind of what happened but I nearly successfully put it away Mm. Mm. and you you did um go to drama school maybe a, a smidge later than others that you trained with so I mean in that there's a, how did you fill those years in between um when I thought I'd put that idea of being an actor to bed the only the only other thing I could vaguely get away with doing at school I was a um I was a bit of a charlatan at school really I was just good enough to convince teachers I could do their subjects um, but either it required a lot of her, uh, hard work at home or utter flimflam. Um, and really the only thing that I had something of an ability to do was put words together on the page. Um, so I thought about journalism and I, I read English at university and then after university I, I joined a local newspaper and then from there I joined um, a local radio station um, working on news. And I thought maybe this is it, maybe um maybe i can tell stories this way rather than as an actor what i found out eventually was i think one of the vital skills of being a good journalist um was was um missing um although i think it was probably a good skill to be an actor which was i found out i was far too thin-skinned um <laughs> you know i would take stories home um, I could feel properly depressed. I'd even, I'd even weep at times over certain stories. Um, and I knew after a while that, you know, I could either keep pushing and progressing uh, through this. And there was talk about, you know, um, getting together a portfolio or something, uh, you know, for bigger newspapers. Um, and in the end, I th- it's, it's not working. I'm too thin-skinned. The paradox, of course, being an actor is you've got to be thin-skinned to really do it and thick skin to survive the industry and that's a that one's a very hard one to get through um so there was a limbo period where after journalism and before going to drama school sort of trying to get those cogs and everything into position i did some teaching um i worked for a bit with the family business when um i mean it ran into trouble around the the awful 2008 and uh, it was sort of all hands to the is it pumps or stumps? I can never remember. The pumps. Pumps, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I, I, I can fall into malapropisms sometimes. <laughs> um, what what, what, what uh, well, my, my, my dad, he worked um, we, we're from just outside Plymouth. And he had worked in Devonport Dockyard for years. I mean, literally putting ships together in submarines. Um, and um, he, he was made redundant. And it really was well maybe i should just see if i can get my own thing together because actually at that particular time i think we were just around the 92 recession um because work was very difficult and he did unfortunately he he did rather well and the business expanded all the way through the 90s 
and into the um, 2000s. So it was an engineering business, really. Um, and then 2008, there were just after Northern Rock and so on, there were early signs that maybe whatever was going to happen was going to hit manufacturing quite hard. And I just finished at a school and was um, sort of looking around for something. And um, my dad got in touch with me and said, I, I could actually use another person at the moment. He said, to look at the things that I can't look at. He said, because something's clearly on the horizon and we need to know whether it's a tsunami or, you know, just, just, just a, a rather big wave that we might survive and of course as I went into it and did as much sort of projecting uh, about the future as is possible with my little crystal ball and my excel sheet it, it became clear very very quickly I said yeah no this is this is going to actually take out a lot of this sector um, and it did so I guess probably the only in a way, really, the only decent thing I've ever done in my life, on, in a in a professional capacity, was to be able to um, warn my dad that that this terrible thing. And thankfully, he, you know, they went on. He was fine. Um, uh, another business that did survive it sort of headhunted him, which was great. And it was at that point, I think, when I realised, my gosh, how fragile all these things are. Because I'd grown up pretty much with this business being in place, you know, all the way through my teens. And it was really at that point, I thought, well, I might as well just go and train to be an actor because I can't predict, you can't predict anything anyway. And you, and, and you can try and build your house on a, a solid foundation, but it can still be washed away. So there you go. <laughs> the, um, and so you went on then to, to Bristol Old Vic School. Mm -hmm. um, do you regard that sort of conservatoire style education as sort of imperative for any would-be performer? I don't think it's imperative. Um, I don't believe that all actors should be trained um, or classically trained in that style, uh, not at all. Um, however, I think it's very unfortunate that we don't have enough in place anymore and haven't for a considerable amount of time for those actors who, for whatever reason, either by choice or um, means, can't say engage with a rep system, for example. I think that's that's a, a great shame. On a personal level, um, I I feel I work best with a safety net, and um, drama schools can't teach someone how to act, um, but what I felt I perhaps needed was to, to be aware of what I could use technically. And one of the great things about Bristol Ovic Theatre School was that um, it was about techniques. They never pushed this idea of, we're gonna turn you into actors or we're, we're going to unlock the secrets of being a, you know, an actor. Um, it was, we're gonna provide you with things that you can use practically. Um, and then after a while, you, you can sort of approach a, a role knowing that if you run into trouble, well, I've got this thing over here that I could perhaps use, or I've got that thing over there. Um, or if you're feeling particularly confident, these are the three things I can absolutely throw away and, 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 and do something a bit dynamic with it. 
Um, so I don't believe in a one size fits all. I think, sadly, however, that for young people to be within the possibility of being noticed by the industry, being noticed by agents, being noticed by casting directors, producers, it's increasingly becoming kind of the only route to being put in front of them, um, which I think is a little bit unfortunate. Um, but no, I don't think it's... I, I've worked with actors who've been trained in very, very different ways. And sometimes, and well, most of the time, the rather than being problematic, the difference in your training is um, quite exciting because you realise you're coming at things from very different places. Then you work with an actor who may not have come through that route at all, and they're working in a different area. So, um, yeah, viva la difference. <laughs> It is interesting to, to say that, I'm particularly about being noticed by the industry, that the resistance that there can be to any sort of new means by which that can be done. I mean, I, I um, we attempted last year to, to make a sort of, we wanted to offer showcase opportunities to those that maybe didn't have one, or maybe who had had one a long time ago, mm. and, um, wanted to, were re-entering the industry or something like that had to pull it. There's literally not one single agent or casting director or company was prepared to come and see it. I think that, yeah, that's... I mean, even allowing for the fact that how busy things are, I think probably what happens is that the, the, um, the turnover of things is so far... The event horizons are so rapid yeah. that eventually what happens is I'm trying to put myself into the position of, say, um, a casting director. Um, thing hits the, 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 the email, oh, I've got to do this. Okay, right, well, I'll just go to those five people I know. Who's available? Um, and I can understand that. Um, and actually, I think it cuts out a deeper issue in, in the industry altogether. Um, and it is where, where sometimes supply and demand can get us. Um, there's, a, there's obviously a surplus. Um, which becomes difficult. And um, then there's also, because there's so much money runs through it, then it's become who's, who's bankable, who's proven. Um, but one of the things I still remember reading about are these individuals. One's just popped into my mind, and that's Dennis Carey, yeah. who used to be the artistic director um, at the Bristol Vic Theatre and would get on trains out into the regions and, and see actors who nobody knew um now i don't think the uh the, the current and this is not a slight on the current <laughs> uh, artistic director of the bristol theater i just don't think the gentleman's got the time things were different but um the fact that you had people uh, olivier is another one very famously of course he would you know he would bring people into the national theater who were completely unknown he he he'd search he'd, he'd go. so there's obviously been a tremendous shift and i think one of the shifts has been everything is is just at such a rate of knots now yeah it's incredibly uh, difficult and expensive for them to get the assistance that they that they require so mm. um it is a shame albeit an understandable one mm. 
uh, a lot of your career has, well, I'll say a lot, but a, a certain proportion of your career has seen you involving yourself in, in very long running or recognisable story brands that uh, generate very strong feelings among fans. I'm, I'm sort of thinking particularly of uh, two that are, two brands that are so often linked in the mind of the populace in the form of Doctor Who and The Mousetrap. Um, and um, um, is, is it... Is it daunting to run the world like that, or is it no more so than it is doing a revival of an already famous play, basically? Um, I think whatever the job, the, the, when you get the phone call to say you've got it, um, you're usually so excited and so relieved um, that you can pay your mortgage or rent or whatever, um, that you don't think about it. I remember with Doctor Who, um, for, for Big Finish, not the television series. <laughs> I'd better make the distinction. <laughs> um, it didn't really, occur, it didn't really daunt me until I was actually in the room with the other actors. And that was only because it was a, a particularly odd sort of situation, really, because what Big Finish do is that they, um, they recreate and add to eras of Doctor Who, they've gone, amongst other things. They've got a tremendously wide repertoire of, um, of shows and so on. So um, doctors from the past have their own ranges, whether that's Tom Baker or, or Sylvester McCoy or whoever. Um, and inevitably what happens, of course, is if you the further back into something's history, the less chance that everyone has survived it. And in the case of the Doctor Who that I was attached to, there were two original cast members from that period, and one had sadly died quite young um, in the 90s. And I got the job um, because it was felt that there was something about my voice that was similar to his, and um, it, it went from there. But I remember thinking on the first day of recording, not so much about the immense passion that Doctor Who fans have, and therefore they might absolutely hate this uh, recasting, but um, that, that just seemed too far away in, uh, in a sense. But suddenly being in the room with people who I thought, oh, hang on, these aren't just the, the late actors' co-stars, they were probably friends as well, because the thing is with Doctor Who, you never leave it in a sense. Uh, they, they might have finished working together in 1967, but because of conventions in the UK, the US, uh, everywhere, they sort of stay as a family in mm. a sense. Um, so I remember just having a sudden moment of, oh, right, just, um, okay but they were incredibly welcoming and professional and so on and so forth. But, but um, I think I remember being told never ever look on a, a message board, never ever look um, at a review, not because the opinions of fans are worthless. It's just, um, it's just very easy to get pulled into the vortex. And of course, because there is such a passionate and protective fan base any change or a recast or something is going to be contentious on some level with the mousetrap um i now know that there is a a, a, a mousetrap uh, sort of fan 
club group appreciation society but um that felt, I, I i all i remember thinking of is oh this is just a bit strange you know that this show has always been here <laughs> throughout my entire life um but i think the thing with the mousetrap of course it's in that wonderful position of being the the one really the one stage show on the west end where a jobbing actor such as myself can play a lead because mm -hmm. it's bigger than any actor um whereas i probably only could get about eight lines and anything else at tops so um it is sort of as much tourist attraction now as it is show isn't it absolutely and although i remember th uh again you sort of go into every job thinking well trying to set up a, a way of of grappling with it and i thought well this you're going to play to american tourists japanese tourists which indeed we did the thing that shocked me most of all was still how big a segment of that was british audience mm. um i i i, uh, so I thought oh, well obviously it's still it's still uh, managing to get the, a home crowd in so to speak <laughs> well, it's a generational thing as well hasn't it because i mean it's i, I remember coming to see i mean it's it's um no secret to our audience that, that you and I have known one another for uh, the last 162 years. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, since we were both pensioners. But when I came to see you in it, and, and I brought you know, my very dear friend, Dana, who was also going to you. And she was, you know, so it was a completely generational thing in her family. Her father brought her and her brother and sister to see it. She has brought all her children uh, to see it. They are bringing their children to see it. It's it's sort of almost well, no rite of passage is a little strong, but uh, it is that sort of thing, isn't it? It's a, it feels like a sort of it's a comforting family thing. I think it's also a wonderful antidote. Um, because it's such, it, it's in such appallingly bad taste, and, uh, you know, and, and we love that. Yeah. And the thing is, to uh, I think one of the, the the things that I just adore about it is is that um, there it is nestled in a part of London which you know is, is you know I mean there's a lot of musical theatre there, but of course it's it's very high end musical theatre uh, shows with immense production values and you know are very often stars. And then you have the very serious plays, and it, it almost seems like it's trolling them. <laughs> it's been there forever, and it is just wonderfully lurid melodrama. Um, and um, I, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's kind of fun to be associated. It almost feels like you're the um, you're the bad boy at the West End. <laughs> it's like rebel without a clue. <laughs> Oh, well, I think you've given them some considerable... I should be sending a copy of this to them. I think you're absolutely right, because it's... it's. I, I know certainly when, you know, obviously... And I say that with complete affection. Oh, know. yes, exactly. Well, likewise. I mean, it's, I, I never... I, speak, I mean, being an absolute minnow of a producer myself, the, the, you, when you're sitting there thinking, what can I put on mm. at the moment? It's... There are times when I would love to put on a load of hoary old toot, yeah. which which is incredibly dated, not in an offensive way dated, but yeah. not, not in a sort of this contains language that was of its time trigger warning dated, but but you know just something something as as 
there's something marvellously sort of blasé about the mouse trap. Oh, right. it, it does not give a toss, does it? And, and yet we had this wonderful um, paradox, almost a paradox, really, because we sort of, I think the actors all got together um, for rehearsal. It's a very fast rehearsal. It's two weeks, you know. Um, and um, we thought, well, this is going to be a jolly. This is you obviously we'll do the work seriously, but you know what? What a thing to be attached to this crazy thing that's gone on for years and years and years. And as I said earlier, it really is a chance for jobbing actors without, uh, well, in, certainly in my case, with, without much profile, to be able to play a leading role on the West End. But then we had Hugh Ross directing the actor Hugh Ross, who came in and not in a terribly um, portentous or, 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 or in, but just said, I'm just going to see if this play can be directed, you know, with the some of the archness taken out of it, which might have started to accrue to it over the years. I wonder if it can be played not free of wit or po-faced, but quite seriously, um, which is a kind of wonderfully lofty ambition in itself. Um, but I also remember set that one, I mean, we were halfway through, and this just goes to show how slow I am um, as, a, as any kind of thinking animal. I was sat in the wings waiting to go on one night for I think my third or fourth scene, there was a, and I just thought, it's basically the cherry orchard with a murder. And then it occurred to me, I thought, oh, I wonder if that is what Agatha Christie must have thought, that, you know, suddenly there was this novelist who was going to do something for the stage, and her reference point was, well, I'll make it as much like Chekhov as I can get away with. That's, you know, all the snow and the house and the, and the, the, the uh, sort of martinet at the centre of it. Um, and then, well, we'll put a, we'll put a, a murder in. <laughs> There's even a joke from the, che from the Cherry Orchard in it, where the young boy, I think it's the young boy anyway, uh, opens the door and, and, and instead of doing um, La Parkin's uh, to Vario or whatever, um, does an impression of a goat. Now that can only be a reference to the, the, the cherry orchard. So, you know, all that turned up. So it was sort of constantly surprising as well. It's, um, it is interesting that things like that because it's, it's how do you, how far do you play them for truth in this? I mean, I, I know from having discussed with you the uh, glorious hilarity that there was on a, another production that you did where, where it had all been played completely for truth and then the author came to see it and said this is absolutely astonishing amazing absolutely marvelous he said it's meant to be a spoof you're all playing it straight we didn't get that memo <laughs> <laughs> the, um, um you you mentioned in, in talking about Doctor Who, the, the sort of the family aspect of it and the convention, and, and um, so you were for, for, for a while and may yet be in, in, uh, again um, a fixture, fixture on the convention circuit in certain certain districts um, through your work with Big Finish's Doctor Who strand. Um, I mean that can be a pretty full on set of experiences for anybody attending, let alone for those there. Mm. I suppose. Uh, how was that for you? And is, is, do you have a particularly fond memory of the convention circuit? Yeah, um, I guess like most of us, it's the, it's the you know, we, we can't sort of hide under a green umbrella because there's no part to play. If suddenly 
with an audience. Um, and you, you've got to be this thing called yourself. <laughs> um, except you're not. What you are is on. You're on all the time. And what I found during the first couple was that um, you you learn a way to pace yourself. It's almost like being an actor on, on a long-running show. Because my mouth used to ache from smiling. Because I had this idea that if I broke my smile, it might be misinterpreted. That I was unhappy to be there, I was unhappy to meet people, I was unhappy to sign things. I was un um, So I sort of overcompensated for the first few. And I, my, my jaw ached. Um, it is a peculiar thing in the sense of um, there's very few, if any, things we can be involved with as actors where you are then faced with your audience, <laughs> you know, literally in the room with you. Um, and I remember thinking it was a crazy thing that I was invited to a convention because I, I, it wasn't as though I, I were in the TV version and therefore the face would be recognisable. Um, I was in the, the audio version, the radio version, um, and um, I'm not, I, you know, I was an actor without a name, you know, job, just a jobbing actor. I thought no one wants to, no one wants to see me, you know, I, I'm nobody. Um, but actually, it was very um, confidence boosting in a way because there were all these people who were interested because not so much for me, but because I was now attached to this thing. Um, and so there were questions asked and people did want uh, a signature and so on and so forth. It was just, uh, you know, it took, a, it took a while to um, quite get to navigate myself through that. And of course, then I was asked to go to the States to do them. Um, so I ended up in Chicago doing a, a convention thinking there's absolutely no way anyone in America could possibly have a clue who I am. Um, but again, you know, the passion for the show is immense. Um, I think probably one of the best memories of being at them was in a way becoming a bit of a fan myself because suddenly you would see other actors on the bill and they might be actors that, you know, I remember, um, for example, I was at one and um, one of the the actors there was Julian Glover. And I, ooh, I thought, oh, that So I sort of snuck into the back of his, Ju Julian had done, I think, over the years, maybe two or three different uh, leading guest roles in Doctor Who. So having seen him on the stage and in film and so on and television, over many years, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go in and just sneak in at the back and I can watch his piece, uh, his, um, his panel. Um, so in a way, I, I found that I was actually being paid to attend conventions where at times I could be the attendee um, because you're suddenly aware of, and this is the brilliance of things like Doctor Who, both on television or, you know, with Big Finish, because you need a different cast, <laughs> you know, every story, the people who have been involved with it, it's, it's extraordinary. And, you, you know, of, of all profiles, but then, you know, you're suddenly at a convention and you're on the same bill as, um, you know, Julian Glover or, or, or Derek Jacobi or something. And it's, it's a bit odd. <laughs> now you, you do a lot of work 
um, still in audio, mm. but on a, a different tone, I suppose, with uh, audiobooks. Is that a completely different world for you to inhabit, or, or do you find that there's, I mean, obviously there's an overlap in terms of how you perform characters within a book, but but you've got so much more to paint as well, don't you? Yeah. Um, for me, I guess, I think it's the, in a strange sort of way, the thing I was meant to do, <laughs> the only drawback of, of audio, but the only drawback is that you don't have interaction with another actor. So you can't look another actor in the eye and, and, and create a, a, a it sounds a bit fanciful, but I really don't think there's anything better when than when you're on the stage or you know um, in a scene for television or something, uh, where you and the person you're with are, are looking at each other, and any any thoughts of um, the, what you're doing technically or any thoughts of who you both really are absolutely seem to vanish that's that's wonderful i think it's probably one of the reasons why we do it but um I, I what i love about it is that um you you go from start to finish now i know you do that in the theater of course as well but you go from start to finish and you can be your own casting director because very often of course these things have anything from five to 25 different characters depending on the kind of book or uh, novel you're doing um and you have to remember, of course, how to do everyone's voice. And very often what happens is on chapter one, someone pops in, they might not pop in again till chapter 18. Well, that's day four. And you're thinking, what voice did I give this person? So I started to basically cast from the living and the dead um, on the basis that a bad impression was an original performance. <laughs> so... There, there are all sorts of actors that I've been able to, you know, feel as I can channel. Um, but uh, certainly at this stage, because I think it is very, very, it's a difficult um, career path. And I think that along the way, you've almost, you've got to sort of have a moment where you are really, really honest with yourself um, about A, what you want to put into it, B, what your chances are, and see what actually might be the things you're better at and the things you're not so good at. Um, I was, I don't know whether it's the old thing about, you know, he's got a face for radio, but when I was at drama school, the, the consensus among the teachers was this is going to be your golden ticket if you can get it to work. I think it was because I was just a terrible dancer, a terrible mover, and I didn't look good on camera. And um, I, when I appeared on the stage, it, it looked like someone had left a hat stand on the on, on the boards by mistake or something. Um, but uh, there did certainly come a point as well, we were saying about the retirement thing earlier. As wonderful as it is to do a stage play, as wonderful as it is when occasionally you get asked to do something for television, even if it is only a few lines, um, or radio, the, um, the stamina is, has to be pretty immense. And you can get tired. And I think uh, actors don't always admit this, that it, it could be tiring and you can get um, a, a bit low about it. 
Um, and certainly, I, at the, I, uh, for me, audiobooks have been something of a, of a lifeline, but a lifeline that is actually sort of rather attractive to look at. I think it's, you know, it's got a lot of gold leaf on it. And, um, because I really, really enjoy doing them. The studio that I work with is a half hour's drive from me. Um, which again is one of those things because I think, you know, you almost have to be monomaniacal if you're an actor, maybe particularly for a struggling jobbing actor. And I think as soon as you realize there might be other things in your life, um, that becomes very, very difficult. Um, I've got a partner, I've got a home, I've got one or two other interests. So this has been a way to keep in the business, but at the same time, I don't feel as though I'm having quite the, 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 the 10 rounds with Tyson that I was having, uh, that I could do 10 rounds with Tyson with my pencil neck. Um, but you know, the idea of, um, of constantly having that phone call, you're going to be seen for this, you're not going to be seen for this, we can't get you in the room for this, we can get you in the room for that, can you tear up the country to do this? When that becomes a bit much, uh, this has been a kind of wonderful way to, to maintain being a kind of actor um, at the same time as um, not feeling constantly in the ring or on the motorway with the blindfold on. You, know? <laughs> uh, you, you, you talk about, um, you, I mean, we, we've talked quite a lot about sort of the, the, um, the character part that's possible to get, the, 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 um, as opposed to the, the big leads, and we talk about the risks that have been taken about actors with, with lower profile. And I know that one of your great joys is... Um, looking back over um vintage shall we say rather than classic cinema <laughs> and I just, like, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've never known anybody with a more encyclopedic knowledge of um uh, lower profile character actors um uh, right. i knew what i was <laughs> it's because i knew where i was <laughs> I, I didn't i didn't try to aspire to be carrie grant i just i i, I aspired to be trader forklift <laughs> So I suppose um, uh, look at looking at your great love of that, and knowing that you've been doing quite a lot of that lately. How generally have you been coping during lockdown? Um, <laughs> this could be absolutely sickening to hear, but remarkably well. Um, and I think it's probably been one of those situation i mean it's a very strange situation uh, uh, where it, it becomes a kind of mirror um I, i'm not reclusive um and i do like being around people and th th i have spurts of being gregarious shall we say but um early experiences i'm an only child and um i really really i'm very good in my own company and um i guess i'm a little lazy um you know i do like to potter about the house and uh, uh, and so on um so it, it's not too bad i mean i'm not i'm not the most physical of people um i do the exercise that just keeps the ticker going and you know it stops me from being too out of 
of shape. I still, unfortunately, always hear Olivier in my head saying that actors should be in, you know, the, the best possible, you know, shape they could. And it's hard to sort of silence that voice. But I don't enjoy um, anything terribly sporty. But I do enjoy reading books and watching vintage films and listening to um, records and and um, all those things are quite private pursuits. So I, I, I find it okay. <laughs> And, and does your wife listen to Wagner in the evening? <laughs> she does. I found her listening to it. She, yeah, I came. I, I, my, my wife is a bit of a fan of, of the opera, but it's it's never gone towards Wagner until I, I did I did hear her playing Das Rheingold from the <laughs> from the upstairs at one point. I thought it was the end of days. It was just a, you know, bouncing off the floorboards. <laughs> so she suddenly, after all these years of being more towards the kind of Monteverdi end of things. I, I think she's discovered Wagner in a big way. So it, it's, it's, gone a, it's gone a bit nuts in the house, I'm afraid. We'll probably clip that bit out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel maybe the only two people watching have a clue what the reference is. Uh, <laughs> once the world has reopened in, in, in something approximating a safe fashion, what, what would you like to see come out of the upheaval that is 2020 in, in terms of the art? Um, I think quite a few things are going to be forced on the business, to be honest. Um, uh, the, uh, the situation with the theatres is really sobering. Um, there are obviously ideas that are being put forward in how to cope with that. Um, I, I guess rather selfishly, uh, I probably, in, in my silent moments, um, selfishly think, maybe everyone will go back to the wireless. <laughs> because being an actor who's probably done more sound than anything else, um, I might be I might be over the chance for some work, um, but I mean I don't I don't wish to be sort of uh, all kind of cloying for the past or terribly nostalgic. But the, it's a shame when some media slip into being um, almost viewed as something of the past. Uh, the, the audio media, if anything, is really accelerating at the moment, and there's a lot more interest in it. Um, the um, the things that Audible have been doing, things that Big Finish are doing, uh, and, and others, um, it would be lovely to to think that uh, maybe actors who can't um, access the theatre, if there is going to be a lingering problem with um, how any of us access the theatre, then maybe there's um, opportunities in, a, in an expanding audio market. Of course, the downside of that is You've, you've got a lot of people in stage management. You've got a lot of people who are theatre directors, theatre producers. So I wouldn't want one to spike, if you like, um, uh, to the detriment of another. Uh, that wouldn't be so fun. Um, but I, th I yeah, if, 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 if that media could be sort of valued again as a, almost a Band-Aid for a bit, <laughs> That would be a possibility, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's um, when you when you hear things like um, the press releases, uh, or you read the press releases and things like the National Theatre, and you think, oh gosh, you know, this does look rather bleak. 
And um, there's always been a fight for uh, investment in the arts anyway, government investment. So it's, um, mm. but I think people, I, I think already there would be incredibly inventive ways and means could be, could could do something surprising glass half full i guess um you're married to who well is, i hope so <laughs> it could be somebody else's wife um, and she's completely unconnected professionally to the arts does that feel make you a more stable and reassuring household uh, it's the only experience i can go by uh, but all I know is, again, on a personal level, it's um, really, really wonderful to have someone who's not in the business to um, be partnered with for two reasons. I think, firstly, uh, people meet each other in the work they have. You know, they haven't met at a university or that's high school sweethearts or something or that, you know, um, they have more, more than one dating apps. Um, <laughs> most people meet in work or a, a great number of people meet in their work and so I know a lot of acting couples um, and of course it's a freelance job, vocation uh, and I think there's a number of difficulties with it, firstly money um, and secondly I think perhaps the inevitable if, if, if one breaks and one doesn't uh, I think that's a challenge for a couple um, no matter how much you're um, uh, pleased for your partner if they suddenly become like the you know cast as the lead in the most successful drama series of the moment and and, and you're still you know doing fringe theatre or something you know that's probably a bit of a challenge but the other thing is that um, I don't have to talk about it much um, as much as I love, have loved being an actor and, and you know, love so much about the business, sometimes talking about it can feel a bit like dancing about architecture. Um, you, you just, it, 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 it's daft. And if you're in a green room with actors, it's wonderful and the, and the anecdotes go round and, uh, and so on. So does the, the, um, the moaning <laughs> about agents or whatever. Um, but I think the problem is it, it can become a bit too like an echo chamber if the only people you're surrounded by are other actors. Um, so I get a really, really great chance to completely break out of that, which is welcome. And um, do you ever ask your dog? For <laughs> my dog, my dog is a natural actor. Um, Frequently. I mean, I, you know, she, if, if I'm alone in the house just with the dog between jobs, that dreaded phrase, um, yes, I, I, will, um, I will go to her for advice. <laughs> or practice on her all the, all the Shakespeare monologues or soliloquies by characters that I'll never be cast for. So she's a, very, she's a captive audience. She's seen my Coriolanus and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> As I've been saying to each of the guests that we have uh, in this series, uh, one of the, the casualties of 2020 has been James Lipton, the friend of Inside the Actors Studio. Mm -hmm. And um, he uh, wantonly stole a series of questions um, from a variety of sources, which I think will go all the way back to Proust. 
um, which uh, he would finish each interview with before he'd open to the floor. So I'm just going to going to have a little rattle, rattle through. Okay. Um, <coughs> what's your favourite word? I quite like the sort of anapest words where the stresses on the end. They're quite fun to say. I don't get the chance to say the word Tennessee much in conversation, but I think that's a lovely word. It's all those S's and that stress at the end. And your least favourite word? I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult to separate words from what, what what their meanings are. And there are some words where that seems more pronounced than others. And I often think that it, it doesn't matter if it was the most beautiful orchid in, in, in existence or, or um, the name bestowed on, on a particularly well-behaved child. But I don't think scrotum works anywhere. Um, <laughs> It just doesn't. It, 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 no, I shrivel like it when I hear it. What turns you on? <laughs> Anything specific? Or <laughs> answer, answer however you like. What turns? What turns me on? Um, ah, the old, the old actor's answer. Captive audience. What turns you off? Um. Oh gosh, I'm going to sound very serious now. I think kind of any form of reaction. As soon as something happens that's new or different, and then the first thing to do is put a whacking great stick in the mud, that turns me off. That turns me off people. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of angels. <laughs> Cherubim. <laughs> what, what sound or noise do you hate? Um, car alarms, not only because in and of themselves they're, they're incredibly irritating uh, and, and, and they whine and they hit that pitch, but no one's interested. Um, you know, no, no one rushes outside to try and save the person's car. In fact, knowing how most people behave, that, that you're, you're twitching the neck going, go on, get away with it, because he bothered me last week with his lawn mowing at midnight. But also the person who owns the car alarm doesn't recognise it. So it's 15 minutes at least before they, they decide to go and sort of the damn thing off. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, dare speak to, I speak to suburban dweller. Um, <laughs> Just mad. I live in a I live in Tower Hamlets. You know, <laughs> I'm on the sixtieth floor. <laughs> uh, what's your uh, What's your favourite swear word? Um. I don't know if you've got a bleeper on hand or what, uh, but uh, of the modern swear words, I'd say, um, I'd say twat. I, I think it's the, you know, because you've, you've got that strong T sound uh, and, then, and then the W being so close and then you can stretch out the R. Ah, um, and it's not the obvious one to hit. Uh, I think for anything slightly more archaic, I quite like the word, uh, it was considered a swear word as well. Uh, uh, bedlamite, I think that's quite a good one. Um, but if I find that I can't immediately leap to that, a good twat um, often suffices. Uh, we haven't had that one. So far. Oh, well. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, that's quite easy, actually. Um, I, I think I would have liked to have been a film editor, um, which is, again, I think it's like the journalism or the acting. It's another way of telling stories. Um, I actually do it as a bit of a hobby um on a on certain 
wet Sundays in the autumn. I'm, I'm, I've got a terrible habit with these vintage films and, and lots of television series of sometimes sitting there going, no, I would have put those two scenes the other way around. Or, oh, I would have cut there. Or, oh, we don't need this bit, this bit. it's padding. And um, I've been very, very guilty of um, just as a, you know, in the, down the bottom of the garden in the shed kind of hobby of, of recutting other people's work, don't tell them. Um, and I think, yeah, if that, that would have been, I love the way things are constructed through an edit and how things are saved through edits. I've seen the odd documentary about even very, very well-known iconic films that have been pretty much saved in the editing, that there was such a mess of rushes. Um, I guess the, 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 most, the famous one, I can't remember the lady's name because she obviously became very famous as a, an editor for the, um, for Jaws, Spielberg's Jaws, which she practically just saved in the edit. Um, you know, he was about to be sued by his, um, his studio and never to have a career and not to take anything away from the things he did on that film, but her edit was considered masterly, so. And what profession would you absolutely not want to attempt? I know it's low-hanging fruit, but no one wants to be an estate agent, do they? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's just so far down the list. Putting aside whatever one's own um, private beliefs may be, if, if, when, when the time comes and the lights go out. If you were to discover that there was indeed a heaven, what would you want to hear said to you on arrival? It's not so much I, ex I, I think what I want to hear said, what I'm absolutely sure will be said is um, by the big man himself. You didn't expect this, did you, kid? <laughs> Words that are going to come out of his mouth and I would just yeah. quiver and turn to jelly and then, uh, you know, posthumously try and do Pascal's wager. Um, well, I probably wouldn't need to, I was already there. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably what we said. <laughs> Without a wink, <laughs> if he was feeling particularly benevolent. And we have to put in mind, you know, that he's not always particularly benevolent. I mean, he did send that flood. Yeah, oh, well, indeed he did. Indeed he did. <laughs> <laughs> along with a, a set of Ikea instructions for a boat. <laughs> um, we have had some questions sent in from outside. Um, the, um, there's a group of them relate to, to Doctor Who and there's one that doesn't, so I, 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 I shall uh, proceed with the Doctor Who question. Uh, Matthew Moyer asks, um, what was your, or what is your favourite Ben Jackson story from TV and or audio? Um, from the audio, uh, it was a story we did by Simon Guerrier called The Outliers, which I, which was just very, very inventive. He did, he did that incredible thing. He managed to achieve the conceit that this story would fit in and around the stories from the 1960s that it is part of, at the same time being very, very witty with anachronisms he was he was putting in a lot of anachronisms um that people of course well, they wouldn't be anachronisms um things that did not exist in 1966 or 1967 and um just giving just putting a little bit of a twist on them so not being too direct about it and i just remember thinking that was really really funny and um we had a lovely 
cast on that one as well. And so yeah, it was just, I think it fell absolutely slap bang in the middle of the whole experience as well. So just at that point where you're comfortable with what you're doing, um, but it doesn't just feel like another day at work. So that was fun. I did do my research vis-a-vis -vis the television series and the original actor to play the part, Michael Craze. And my favorite of those was a story called The Macra Terror, which, um, and because I think I was looking at or experiencing all these stories largely through the lens of his character, because that's who I was going to play, it, I think it just happened to be the performance that was the most demand, or the script that was the most demanding on him. Um, he had to, um, have a bit of an emotional breakdown during that story and um, the, the, the original actor did it very beautifully, really, really nice. So yes, the outliers and the macro terror. That does also, I hope, uh, Philip Poole, if he's watching, uh, deal with his question as to whether or not you watched old episodes with Michael Craig to familiarise yourself. Uh, I hope that's been answered for you. Yes, well, I watched as many as I could have because the BBC decided in its infinite wisdom to burn quite a lot of them or just lose them around the globe. Um, but everything did exist on sound, which was really handy. Some, there was a complete sound track of every story. And as I was going to be doing it on sound anyway, in a, in a way, it was kind of a flavour of what I'd be doing. Um, Jay Barry asks, uh, is there any direction that you would have liked to have gone in with Ben? Um, it's, it's kind of frivolous, but uh, there's an actress that um, works on a different range for Big Finish called Lisa Greenwood, and she is a companion of Colin Baker's Doctor. And she plays a character called Philippa Jackson and we were at a convention at one point and you know what novels and televisions like no two people have the same name ever or, um, a, a forename even less so and I thought oh hang on there's only so many companions there's two companions it's Ben Jackson and you're Philippa Jackson so what are you you related to me are you my granddaughter or something you know uh, because she's from the present day and my character's from the um the middle 60s um so we had this sort of whole fanciful idea of um i was her grandfather and um annika wills who plays polly the other companion that i'm with uh was her grandmother and she would be forced to introduce us to her friend the doctor and expecting us to be all oh, you know, what, what's all this this mad world you're in and of course our reaction would be yeah we know who he is and he would be the one who was shocked and well how well you've never told me about this etc so we had this sort of a, a fanciful idea that then it would be a kind of meshing of two um of two versions of the series but perhaps the producers wisely went no way <laughs> but yeah i would like to have seen that partly because lisa greenwood is so much fun as well she would have been rather fun to have been in the uh, studio with. liam campbell young asks, why did you leave the role and, and would you be happy for someone to be recast in your place? Uh, to answer that in reverse, um, uh, absolutely not. And anyone who takes on this role is, is going to get a bunch of fives. No, no, okay. I, no it, it's abs absolutely fine. I think the great thing about these characters now, not just the Doctor, but um, the companions and so on, is that I think 
we're now getting to the stage where they have become characters, characters that are played by actors rather than um, being completely associated with an actor. The thing is, it never means a, a, a version of it is erased. Um, I always speak about Michael Craze as being, in a way, the definitive Ben, because he was the first and he'd established so much of the character. Uh, and in a way, I just sort of grabbed the baton. Um, so I have absolutely no um, objections, <laughs> not that they would be taken seriously, about another Ben. I think it's, um, if it means the character keeps going, yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason I left, it was a cluster of reasons more than one um, ma major reason. It was all around that time when I was thinking of somewhat sculpting back how much I was doing as an actor anyway, um, which we sort of talked about earlier. Um, but I think I was, the, I remember the deciding factor being, I, I suddenly became aware that I was about to, just about to overtake, overtake Mike's record of episodes. Um, and being the first recast of Ben, I thought, hmm, how does that sit? Is that something I actually should do? He's done whatever it was, 42 episodes of television. I'd just done 42 episodes for audio or whatever. I'm pl plucking a number out of the air. So there was, there was that. Coupled with the idea of how, how reasonably much longer can I go on playing it and um, giving it anything? You know, um, I'm, Ben Jackson is 21. I might have lived 21 years more than once. <laughs> or near as damn it. Um, so, so, okay, uh, did, when, when is a jumping off point? Uh, 10 years? 15 years? Um, and then I thought, may, maybe go when it's still fun that dreaded thing go when it's still fun rather than I, I i think it doesn't it's not just acting i think anything when you're dragging your bones into something and and you're sort of phoning it in it's already dead so i'm sort of obliged to ask the question because there has been a huge amount of speculation about it amongst um the sort of groups that i, I looked at when we were saying latin people know what they're doing with um so I take it then you would lay to rest any uh, indication that there was some sort of broader political reason why you chose to move? No, there was, um, unfortunately, uh, I think two events that were unconnected happened at once. And I can quite understand we're patent-seeking animals and, and uh, everyone loves a good conspiracy and everyone loves a, 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 a more melodramatic narrative or something. Um, but... Um, no, it really was kind of boring. I just, well, I, I think I've contributed probably as much as I can. I'm an actor of limited stretch. Um, and um, we've had a good innings. And I think anyway, there have been talk, and I think it's now come to pass, that maybe that range was going to halve its output anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, it seemed like it, but yes, there, there, there was an, a completely unrelated event, but the, the two things were, I quite understand why these things happened, were um, pulled together as being of the same uh, 
background and they weren't. Uh, attached to Liam's question about, about how you left, well, we also did have, it wasn't a question so much, but there was Carl Williams who, who uh, replied to our call out for questions, just saying, please, please, please come back. Um, if the door was left open for you, is there a set of circumstances where you might be persuaded to return? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it wouldn't be persuasion. <laughs> it's not, um, it, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, like Sean Connery, never say never. Um, because they're just named the story that, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think I, yeah, I'd be absolutely foolish to, you know, oh, well, because it, it wasn't, uh, it, it's not of that kind of, well, I've done that, I'm, I'm never doing that again, I'm off to greater things. It was, it was more a case of, I think that's probably as far as I can go with it. But um, if there was a, you know, a, an, something that came along and uh, yeah absolutely i'm not um <laughs> i'm not precious <laughs> um oh there's actually two so i thought there was only one question more, uh, one more um nick from um hendon has asked um is there an actor that you would uh preferably one who's still alive <laughs> that you would dearly love to play against that you haven't had the chance to do so I have been very fortunate that I have worked with my acting hero, um, David Warner. Uh, growing growing up, I had two. Uh, we all have like actors who we you know love. Um, I think then if we're interested in being an actor, we have the actors who we sort of more than love. That that they they become people in a way we almost start to want to emulate um, for their immense talent or whatever. And the two it, for me growing up with David Warner and John Hurt, who were actually friends and did a film together, David Halliwell's Little Malcolm. Um, I got to work with David on a, a Doctor Who and um, it was sort of everything that um, I, I could have hoped for. He was a gentleman, he was um, extraordinary performance. Um, and it's on. A recording so I can't lose it it's not ephemeral <laughs> you know it's not like doing the stage um John Hurt of course Sally no longer with us that would have been extraordinary um there's there's no there's no one that sort of springs to mind although as soon as we finish I'd probably go oh wouldn't it be wonderful to work with her or wouldn't it be wonderful to work with him um but I feel very David Warner was a big tick on the list <laughs> and one I never thought would happen the final question we've had in is Mel and Porter said, uh, you are a, a, a Bristol and Environs resident. Uh, what, if anything, should replace the Edward Colson statue? Um, I said this at the time, and I'm very, very pleased that although um, <laughs> my suggestion has been forgotten, it is catching on. And in fact, I think there is even a petition. And I suggested a gentleman by the name of Paul Stevenson. Uh, and he was, he worked for Bristol Buses and he was very involved in the um, civil rights um, local to Bristol in the 60s. Um, that just feels, that just feels incredibly appropriate to me. And it's, it, it's a, it's a, 
it's a Bristol-born person, you know. Um, I think he was second generation. Um, if not, I mean, he's, you know, he is a son of Bristol. I think that would be, that would be nice. Mm. With which, um, I think having somebody like that to um, represent something of the struggle, which we're all learning, uh, about uh, those of us that, that haven't been directly impacted in our lives um, is, a, is a wonderful idea. We associate ourselves with that and of course we as a company associate ourselves with the the movement to, to counter that and we'll be doing our own reflection as time goes on. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much Paddy, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Elliot Chapman. The show was written, presented and edited by Patty Cooper, theme music by Curtis Banson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, the estate of Michael Craze, the BBC, Big Finish Productions and Toby Jones' Red Rocket Rising. The series is executive produced on behalf of the Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Sturton. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please. Consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.